Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. Today's speaker is Father Michael Kaiser. I've taken my text this morning from Psalm 96, verses 8 through 9. Given to the Lord the glory due unto his name, Bring an offering and come into his courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. Even at home, when I wander around and I'm in my collar, uh, shopping, you know, doing whatever, trying to figure out where Lowe's hides the, the proper size wood or whatever. You know, I'll have people come up and say, how you doing, Rev? Where do you preach? Because that's the only thing they equate ministry with, basically, is preaching. So where do you preach? And I said, well, often I preach at St. Andrews here in Eustis. I preach at a church up in Atlanta every couple of weeks. You know, I mean, I say I used to get around a lot for a living. I'm, I'm supposedly retired now but uh, that hasn't shown any evidence on Sundays. So, uh, well, that's great. You know, I mean, after all, we're all for the Lord. We're all one. And, and, you know, you don't get into it at that point. And if you've been in the Orthodox Church for any length of time, you have probably invited friends to church. Afterwards, if you asked for their opinion, as they're their their pupils become, become back to small dots and what have you. If they, they might, you might get something like, well, it was, it was interesting, you know, it was nice, it was real nice. Uh, it was complicated and a little confusing. I didn't understand much of it, but, you know, didn't Jesus say we were to worship simply? I mean, uh, at which point you try to launch a history lesson for them that you yourself may not completely understand, and forgetting that anything that looks organized to a Baptist seems Catholic, the entire experience crashes and burns. They will try to stay awake during your presentation, assuring of how you of how lovely it all was, and on the way home will say things to each other like, what in the Hades was that they were doing? Yeah. It comes as a real surprise to many sincere people to discover that the earliest followers of Jesus did not have a simple form of worship. Somehow the impression has made its way into our mind, whether through media, movies, or reading you know, certain kinds of books, that Christ and his followers engaged in only the most unadorned and plain kind of devotions. But if we read the Bible, that's both the Old and the New Testament, you remember. None of this New Testament Psalms garbage. You know, the entire Bible is that thick. If you read both the Old and New Testaments, we discover that God is not indifferent to how he is worshipped. At no time in the scriptures does he say, just go out there and wing it, and you know, one more praise chorus if you would do that. There is no justification for assuming 
that he and his followers worshipped simply, even if you read the New Testament, the book of Acts. Now, yeah, sometimes Jesus, because as is said in the story today, was just had people constantly on his face. You know, please do this, please do that. Heal this one, heal that one, please, you know. Uh, raise my mother from the dead, you know, if, if you got time. Uh, you know, he often did seek solitude. He often, you know, once had him row into the boat and so just, just could sit there in the water. Uh, you know, I mean, he, he, there were, I can remember something similar when I was at St. Vladimir's Seminary. Way, way long time ago. Uh, you ever tried to park a brontosaurus in New York? It's, the parallel parking with them was murderous. It was a long time ago. But he often tried to get away. And Father Alexander Schmemann, who was the dean of the seminary, world-famous scholar who was a mentor and eventually a friend. You know, we, we used to joke about it. You know, he would, he would, knowing that he had a group of people waiting for him in the hallway, he would start to wind up his lecture. And you knew he was winding up his lecture because he starts moving towards the door. I mean, he's not stopping saying anything. He's just, just going along, you know. And at the very end, he's saying, that, my brothers, is the kingdom of God. Grab the door, fling it open, and just dash down the hallway with people trying behind him. Father, Father, I need to talk to you. And getting into his office was, you know... Not an easy task to do. He had a very, very good secretary who kept that from, uh, from happening. So I've seen that sort of thing. I've never experienced it, but I, I have seen that sort of thing. And so sometimes, yeah, he, they'd be out there and he'd be happy and he, he would be by himself or the 12 or what have you. But the fact is, often Jesus, even when he prayed out of doors, wasn't doing the cathedral and the pine shtick that so many people talk about. Oh, I can worship, you know, out in the woods much more freely than I can worship God. No, you can't. You can't do that because God never said worship out in the woods. That's basically it. And we try to follow his instructions. Whenever Jesus and his followers came into a town or a village, he would go to the synagogue, which was their version of the parish church, and he either worshipped or he taught. Now, as his fame grew, and this would happen to, a Paul, to Paul, too, uh, as a prominent Pharisee amongst the Jews, you know, he might be recognized. And, you know, it was the right of any male Jew both to read the scriptures and to make commentary on them if he wished. Now, most guys didn't do that. Usually it was the rabbi, the trained person, you know. But they, they could. And although Rab, uh, Jesus was not a trained rabbi, he was in fact a trained carpenter, uh, what he said was generally profound and interesting, and sometimes uh, they would, uh, would ask him to read. And he did that in his own synagogue one time, he read a time, and he read from Isaiah, and read the description of what would happen when the Messiah came. The eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, etc., etc. And then he stops the reading and he looks at them and he says, Today this prophecy is come true in your eyes. And they threw him out. Because they knew what he said. He was saying he was God. He was the Mashiach, the Messiah, the anointed one. 
Whenever possible, he would go to the temple and commemorate Passover. But also, Jewish feasts like Pentecost, we didn't start that. Pentecost celebrated the giving of the law on Mount Sinai to Moses. And such things as Sukkoth, which we now call the Transfiguration, the Feast of Booths. There was no more elaborate ceremonial anywhere than that of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. They had what they called the court of the Gentiles, which was basically this out here. And uh, that was for those who were not Jews, who were uncircumcised Jews or unbaptized proselyte Jews. And the court of the Gentiles was like the nave of the church. And in the front of the church nave, the great altar stood sometimes behind a, uh, a, a large curtain, sometimes not. But it stood where our altar stands. Priests played loudly on gold and silver trumpets. Don't even think about it. Uh, some carried burning charcoal uh, to uh, the altar, you know, big bowls of burning charcoal that they put on the altar, not this little dinky thing like this. Uh, and others would carry incense, and they just dumped the incense in these bowls until you had, you know, well, yeah, yeah, it was just, just kind of a, a wall of smoke. The first seminary I went to, and you showed a house, the Episcopal Seminary, uh, you know, we always had a contest to see who could make the most smoke. You know. And on the Feast of St. Michael and All Angels, the Middlers, that you had three years, freshman, middler, senior, the Middlers got to serve. And we had one guy who, you know, what you, you, you do with, you're supposed to do with, is that you burn charcoal and then you dump it out and you light new charcoal and put it in. And after you've sensed that time, you dump it out into one of these big Charles chips cans or something like that. And, uh, you know. So you've got a can two-thirds full of unburned charcoal because it never burns all the way through. And we had a door there. It was coming time up to sense the offertory. He opened the door. He put the Charles chips can down. He dumped incense to it, and he hit the switch on the fan like that going on. Now, we're down there in uh, the nave, actually trying to worship. And the guy next to me keeps hitting, what? And he points up front. And you could not see the altar. It was totally obscured behind this wall of smoke. And since it was September and in Wisconsin, it's a little warm, somebody had opened up the back door, so it was just being sucked on down the name, and eventually you can't see anybody except the guy standing next to you. And I remember he turned to me and he said, nothing but the simple faith of Jesus. I lost it. So then they would put the incense on there, and then the body of a lamb, already dead, Peter does not have to freak, taking the body of a lamb was lifted to the altar and it was offered to God by the high priest. After which he turned and gave the ironic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's how Jesus worshipped. 
That's what his followers understood to be worship. Did that suddenly end after the resurrection? Did he come out of the tomb and say, oh God, no more smoke, and no more smoke. <laughs> oh God, it's killing my lungs, you gotta stop that. No, nothing stopped. They kept going to the temple in Jerusalem. They kept going to the synagogue. They kept doing precisely what they had always been doing because they were Jews. And that was their tradition. The only thing that changed would have been what? You want to take a stab? Oh, come on. The lamb. The animals. What ended was the animal sacrifices. Because the lamb of God was the incarnate word of God. And once he came forth from the tomb, all other sacrifices of animals were absolutely and completely irrelevant. They're never referred to again. The offering of the bread, the offering of the wine, the offering of incense morning and evening, uh, which uh, if you can do in your homes, you should try to do, you know, just a little bit on you. Uh, all of the things that were offered continued to be offered in the Christian body that was now part of Judaism. Except we didn't kill animals anymore. There has been great debate, by the way, in Israel, which centers on if we ever rebuilt the temple, I don't think they would be dumb enough to do that. They'd have the entire Muslim world on their necks. But if we rebuilt the temple, would we reestablish the Old Testament worship? Well, wouldn't you worship a few PETA members? Possibly. Uh, sacrificed a few PETA members. But, you know, it, it's, it's you know, one of those, those, those debates that they have over there. It's not ours, you know. So this was the worship that Jesus and his followers went to. It didn't end after the resurrection. The temple was not destroyed until 40 years after Jesus was dead I mean, and risen. You know, so uh, they kept going there. They met people there. Christians met in the area. Uh, that's where Pentecost took place was outside the temple of Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit descended upon the twelve and either they were able to speak other languages or people were able to understand theirs. That's again something that is argued about by scholars. But you know that at least everybody heard it. They couldn't say we didn't know what they were talking about because they heard it. And then of course that presented them with a challenge. The only change was the offering of the Holy Eucharist and the one true sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And that, by the way, was not so much a change as a reinterpretation. They had, they had also offered bread before. They called it the way bread. You know, like we hand out the Anditeron and what have you, that bread was blessed and distributed to the people. So, I mean, you know, it, it wasn't that big a deal. We are not saved by the blood of bulls and goats, but by Christ on the cross, so we no longer need to sacrifice animals, even though, and we tend to forget this, God commanded it. God said this should be done. Whether it was the tabernacle or the temple, God did this to prepare people for the sacrifice of the true Lamb of God. Now, how many Jews standing there by the cross 
you know, got struck in the brain by that, we have no idea. But obviously some did. Especially the ones who were following Jesus. So what would happen is on Sunday, they would go, to uh, Saturday night, they would go to uh, temple and to synagogue, and then they would go someplace else and offer the Mass, the liturgy, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, whatever term you want to use. Which was really, at the time, I guess, was kind of a short addendum to everything else that had happened. See, this is why it's so important to understand what happens during Holy Week. Jesus dies according to John's Gospel on the eve of the Passover. He could have picked the 4th of July, but he knew and he could have picked, by the way, any Friday evening, any Sabbath Eve, because the Sabbath for them and for us is Saturday. But they, do, they did something with him on every Friday evening that was the same. It was a similar to the Passover meal, but not, not as long, not exactly the same. And it is at that meal that many scholars believe, not at the Passover meal, that he said, take, eat, this is my body, this is my blood. Because he knew they would not come back together again to serve the Passover for another year. We forget real fast. We really do. But the next Friday night, they would be there. And when someone said the words, take, eat, this is my body, it would hit brain. And they would understand why they were there and what they were supposed to be doing. Now, by about 100 A.D., the Christian Jews had basically been barred from worshiping at the synagogue. In the beginning, it wasn't too rough. And, you know, probably they, they thought, thought these people are kind of cute. You know, oh, look, they think the Messiah has come. Uh, but eventually it got to be a little bit difficult. For one thing, the early Christians would not take part in any assassinations or revolts. Jerusalem was about as dangerous as it is now. You know, Israel, actually Judea is what the, Palestine, uh, the uh, Romans called it, Judea, <clears throat> was a hotbed of terrorism and revolutionary plots and, and, and kidnappings and all kinds of things. That's why Pontius Pilate was there. Pontius Pilate didn't normally live in Jerusalem. He usually lived in Caesarea Philippi. That was the Roman provincial capital. But knowing what could go on down there, he took a whole cohort of troops down and uh, they hung out. And the Christian Jews, when they were asked to assassinate these people, they said, no, we can't do this. Jesus said, we shouldn't do that. So that was getting a little annoying. Uh, and of course, they kept talking about this Mashiach who had come to fulfill all the Jewish prophecies. And that was getting a little annoying because people were responding to that. It would get even worse after the destruction of the temple because the temple was the only place a Jew could have his sins absolved. And when the temple was torn down brick by brick, now what do we do? And the Christians said, well, interesting you should mention that. We know this guy. Many of us heard him and talk, you know, and he died and rose from the dead to forgive us our sins. That was a big thing. 
a big evangelistic tool, uh, and a lot of the Jews responded. So what the rabbis decided to do was place into the synagogue worship, which would have been very little different. We took many things uh, on, our, on, on our journey, but very little different from matins this morning or vespers in the evening. It was psalms chanted, it was lections read. They had a lectionary just like we did. We can figure out at what feast Jesus was preaching by basically observing what he said about the scriptural text because we know what the reading was. Oh, well, that was Pat, uh, Pentecost, such and such a year. You know, we, we can do this. Uh, but they inserted into the synagogue worship specific phrases condemning Jesus as a false messiah, pretty much between 90 and 100 A.D., which puts you in a bind. You would either say that and thereby deny your faith, even if you made a mental reservation, or you walked out of the synagogue. And it was at that point, about 108 that the real split, the real split between Christian and Jew takes place, you know, between 90 to 100 AD. So they had been barred from worshiping in the synagogue, so they took with them that central act of worship that we call the Mass. Although, like I said, plunk us the first century Jew down here from Matins, and he'd be perfectly happy. You know, he would know exactly what was going on. Uh, and, uh, well, the New Testament lesson might freak him out a little bit, but otherwise he need know the Psalms. He might even know some of the chants. You know, chants have changed over the centuries, but, but basically what we do is based on the Hebrew synagogue chant with whatever cultural fluctuations have taken place at the time. So the first century Jew would feel comfortable with that, and also with the offering of incense, because they did that with the chanting and the reading of Psalms. Listen to this from the book of Revelation. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat upon the throne. And around about the throne were four and twenty elders sitting in white raiment, and they all, and on their heads they had crowns of gold, and the four and twenty elders fell down before him and worshipped him. What is being described by St. John is not, as many people think, an allegory or a vision. He is describing the offering of the liturgy in our mother church of Antioch, the beginning of Orthodox worship, the early liturgy of Asian Christendom that has developed into the breathtaking worship that we offer to God today. Did you think it fell out of the sky somehow? You know, they had a precedent and, and they simply, you know, there was never a time, never ever a time when Christians worship simply. So when you get that, you can point that out. Tell them to go back to their Bibles and read where it was Jesus said worship simply. It's in the same place. He said that babies cannot be baptized. Absolutely nowhere. Jesus never said any of those things. What we do is because God commands us to worship in this manner. Your homework for this next week, or I guess two weeks when I'm back, 
is to get a Bible, and I did no New Testament and Psalms, an actual for real Bible with the Old Testament scriptures in it, and start reading at Exodus 24 and continue to about Exodus 31. Exodus 24, Exodus 31. You will discover that God is not indifferent to how he is worshipped. He gives exact directions for building the tabernacle and later the temple. He wants an altar in it. He wants incense offered at it morning and offering. He wa uh, evening, he wants oils consecrated. He wants decoration. You know, he wants the cherubim written, either painted on the walls or written and uh, stitched into the... Uh, you know. He wants decoration. And time after time after time, he will give this whole thing, you know, the cubit by cubit by cubit thing. And then say, this is a perpetual statute. Well, I don't know about you, but I figure when God says perpetual, he means perpetual. He means forever. In other words, this is done forever. In chapter 29, and this, I love this, I just love this. In chapter 29, he describes the robes and the vestments for the priests, which if you think about it, is pretty much how an Orthodox bishop vests today. There's not a direct connection, but there are, you know, some things that fold into that. You know, he's got the crown and the sockos and all that. So in chapter 29, he describes the robes and vestments for the priests, how they should be ordained, and he gives the reason he wants his priests clothed in rich and sumptuous garments. Exodus 28. You are to make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, who was the priest for glory and for beauty. That's all. That's it. No practical reason whatsoever. God likes pretty stuff. And he wants his priests dressed in pretty stuff. And he wants his churches to be filled with pretty stuff. And again, he says, this is a perpetual statute for him and for his descendants. If I were to come in here and serve the liturgy in my street clothes, it would be number one a sign that you should start wrapping me up and take me someplace. But I would be denying God's direct command. Now, I've denied enough of God's commands throughout my life, so I really do try to hang on to the ones I know I can do, and wearing vestments in church on Sunday is one of them. Jesus changed none of this. You will get the argument, well, Jesus came and it all changed. No, it didn't. When God says something is perpetual, it can't be changed. Forever, it can't be changed. And Jesus never said that. In fact, he said precisely the opposite. He said, not one jot or tittle, those are accent marks in Hebrew, not one jot or tittle will pass away. Heaven and earth, he says, may pass away, but the law shall never pass away. So just because Jesus comes doesn't mean we commit adultery, even though the commandment says no. In fact, he says, I have not come to change, but to fulfill. Now, when you fulfill something, it's a little bit like renovating a house. What you do is, you know, you, you 
make it have more meaning, have more value, you know, have more beauty. What he's trying to get across, and some of them get it and some of them don't, is that the external laws and rubrics that kind of exist out here aren't supposed to, they're supposed to exist in here, living in our hearts. Now, I mean, let's be honest, there are a lot of Christians and a lot of Orthodox Christians who worship in ways that we do, which and, and do so openly in a mechanical manner. Openly. They may not realize it, they may think they're putting their whole heart and soul into it, but when they're doing this, they're thinking about what they're going to have for lunch. They're not focused on what they're supposed to be focused on. And that was true of Jews too. That's what Jesus was trying to get across to them. You have been given the law. The purpose of the law was not to save your soul because external laws cannot save your soul. The purpose of the law was to give you a context within which to be ready to receive Jesus or me, the Messiah. And that's why he starts saying things that like, you know, if you even look at a woman improperly, you have committed adultery. Yeah. The law is something which we digest and make eternal. And it becomes, in a sense, a set of glasses through which we now look out of the world at the world in a different way. Jesus changed none of it, but he came to give new meaning and tone to what have you. Jesus, the Lamb of God, is now the sacrifice that we enter into and share every single time we offer the Mass. When in our worship we have found forgiveness, we offer to God the only gift that was ever perfect in his sight, and that is the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross. Now we have to understand what that means, because we can get off the track there too. That doesn't mean every time together we're killing somebody. It doesn't mean we're renailing him to anything. Jesus entered into heaven with his scarred humanity. The marks and wounds are still there. He stands before God 24-7. He lives, as it says in the epistle of, of, of the Hebrews, to ever make intercession for us. And basically what he said is this. Okay, Dad, I get it. They're not much. But we made them. So we're stuck with them. And we've got to go ahead with this. We've got to go ahead with the whole salvation thing, the whole plan. You know, everything, everything's going to work out the way. And it is that offering, and I'm offering you these wounds as proof of what our commitment of what we have already done. So what we do when we are here now this morning and any time we come together is not re-sacrifice Christ, which is an old-fashioned Roman Catholic doctrine. We enter into the kingdom of heaven and stand with Christ before God on his throne and join in his sacrifice of himself, offering along with him. That's why I have to have at least one person to do the Mass. I can't celebrate it by myself. You know, because it's our offering, our entering into, our saying in effect, yeah, we know we're not much, what he said, but we need help. 
we really, really need your help. Please do so. We, are, we, we join into his offering that he gives 24-7 in heaven and every offering of the Eucharist we join him in offering ourselves. We plead Christ one offering of himself once offered. We'll say that in the consecration prayer. We add it to our poor gifts of praise, thanksgiving, and worldly possessions. With humble, penitent hearts, we kneel to receive the presence of Christ himself. And in receiving this comes our spiritual strength to live a better life. I would not survive as a Christian if I didn't have to stand before that altar every Sunday. Because I know God can see right through me. All I can do is kneel there in mercy and ask for mercy. Take the liturgy out of all of this and you remove its deepest meaning. This is why the psalmist says, Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. This is why St. Paul writes, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of the holiest of blood of Jesus, and as a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in the full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the possession of our faith. In the name of the Father and of the Son. And of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.